Greetings, listeners, and welcome to the Princeton Tory Podcast. My name is Billy Wade from the class of 2023 and the host of today's discussion. And with us today, we have some fantastic guests. First off, we have Adam Hoffman from the class of 2023, the fearless leader of the Princeton Tory. As well, we have Rebecca Adams of the class of 2021, the president of the Princeton Open Campus Coalition and the greatest artist since Vincent Van Gogh. And last, but certainly not least, we have Peter Colvin of the class of 21, the VP of the Princeton Open Campus Coalition and the individual with the best hair at the Princeton Tory. Welcome you all. I, I've got to up my game. I want to be introduced next time around as the individual on the Tory with the best hair. <laughs> yeah, that, that feels like it can be a contentious statement there, Billy. You might have opened up a can of worms with that. That's true. I, I really hope that I don't get canceled just for commenting on someone's hair, but you never know. <laughs> you never know nowadays. You yeah. never know. You never know. So uh, today's podcast is a little special edition. Uh, we're a few days into the new year of 2021. We have yet to have a new American crisis, although maybe we're close to some. We don't know yet. Uh, but before we have too many crises in 2021, the point of today's discussion is to make some New Year's resolutions, maybe personally, but mostly for the conservative movement itself, whether on campus or nationally, or just kind of what we hope to see from uh, the conservative movement going forward in 2021. So I, I've asked these, each of you guys to come up with a few different resolutions uh, and we can discuss those. So um, as my employer, Adam Hoffman, will have to begin first. Well, I think employer means that I pay you. So I, I, I don't know if we'll <laughs> go with that title, but I'll go ahead anyhow. So thanks again. Thanks again for having me. But I wonder um, if that's a hint there, Adam. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, so something that came to mind for me um, was um, prioritizing Trump's foreign policy, particularly America's orientation in the Middle East. Um, right. So in so many ways, America just shattered um, the foreign policy, quote, consensus, um, the foreign policy establishment elites beliefs on how to solve um, the Israeli-Arab conflict, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, as I assume all of our listeners know, as all of you know, um, President Trump, um, President Trump's team led by Jared Kushner um, signed peace between Israel, the UAE, Bahrain, Sudan, and the list goes on. Um, and in doing so, they said that actually to arrive at peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians, you can first begin with other Arab states. And that's something that, that that's the opposite of the approach that has been tried. There was this video I saw going around social media. I don't know if y'all had caught it of John Kerry saying, I can tell you with certainty that peace with, the Pal peace with the Arab countries will only come once you have peace with the Palestinians. Well, it turns out John Kerry, not so fast. Um, so, so I think this is an area um, where we could see the national consensus moving. Um, you know, it's so clear results were accomplished. Um, the results were so good, in fact, that the Biden administration, or excuse me, that Joe Biden in many ways started taking credit 
for um, for um, you know some of these advances in peace that Trump had made. Um, so so I'd be excited to see um, a lot of these for America's orientation in the Middle East, America standing with Israel um, to become the national consensus um, on um, on on our um, on a bipartisan basis uh, on the world stage. Um, I, I would be very excited about that. And I think that could be really a winning issue. Yeah, I, I think Adam, you bring up a really good point because even from Trump's strongest critics within the conservative movement, usually the Israel policy is not part of their criticism. And in fact, there, there has been a lot of good done, I think for sure. But do you think that going forward, Americans will actually care? Just with so much yeah, that's happening I, I, here in, in 2020, I guess, moving forward, do you think they'll care more? I think certainly. America's always had a fascination with the Middle East, I think, um, with Israel in particular, because of the deep, its deep historical, its deep um, religious significance. Um, there's always been a fascination with the Holy Land. Um, I think also the Middle East has important strategic um, um, uh, value for, for America. Um, you know, increasingly China's becoming active in the Middle East. Folks recognize it as, um, as a crossroads between three continents, because that's what it is, right? Between Europe, between Asia, between Africa. Um, and it's the battleground of all of that. Um, so I, I think folks recognize its strategic importance too, but uh, it also has resource significance, right? I mean, it's filled with energy and mm -hmm. to, right, to produce for our countries to be industrious, we need that. Um, so there's also, uh, you know, an additive incentive to stay involved um, for that reason. Um, so I don't think that Americans will stop caring. Um, and I think if they do, they will quickly learn that there are good reasons to care. <laughs> I yeah, do want to make a comment, actually. Um, I wouldn't say um, very recently, or at least around like the turn of the new year, before the turn of the new year, people cared so much about um, international relationships, um, mainly because there was a pandemic and a lot of people were just like, uh, let's figure out what to do here. Like, there's a lot going on here that we need to fix. And then, of course, with the protests, they're like the two main priorities became pandemic, like racial relations and somehow climate change got thrown into there. But I think in the long term, I would agree that um, eventually over time, Americans would see that there's a practical interest with um, these diplomacy relations, um, especially in the Middle East and Israel, are working out um, in the long term. So, well, might it be, Rebecca, that folks didn't quote unquote care about um, international affairs because Trump was doing such a great job with it? You know, there wasn't any pressing <laughs> issue there. You know, no one was about to explode. You know, Trump was pulling back um, uh, troops from abroad, yet, you know, nothing, nothing was going crazy, nothing was on fire. Um, you know, right before I forget which election it was. Um, there was an attack on our embassy in Libya. Um, you know, suddenly, you know, foreign affairs was a really big deal because there was an issue there. But Trump's done, I think, a very good job at containing the world 
um, at leading the world um, so that it doesn't need to be a big issue. I, very interesting how World War III ended up bringing about so much peace in the Middle East here. Um, <laughs> I, just, I think back to the start of 2020 with all the concern about our hardline stance with Iran. And I really think, Adam, you, you hit the nail on the head there. This, this common issue uh, diplomacy with the other Arab states um, in creating kind of a coalition against the Iranian terror regime and working around the Palestinian issue rather than directly addressing it and working towards these common economic goals, it's opened up a whole new world of possibilities here. And it would be very tragic if the Biden administration attempted to reset the clock to carry-esque sort of diplomacy. Uh, we can see that <laughs> they, they exhausted, I believe, the diplomacy that can surround the Palestinian state. And I'm very glad to see that the Trump administra administration did not go for that um, that trap and decided to approach it from a different angle. I think maybe the best thing that can happen right now is to keep things on the status quo in the Middle East. I really hope that Biden doesn't. Uh, do you? Here's my question for you, Adam. Do you see if Biden re-enters the nuclear deal with Iran, do you see that destabilizing these peace treaties? What do you see that being an issue going forward? Well, I, I think what the peace treaties, um, what, what the Abraham Accords, what the peace treaties between Israel and the other states um, actually achieved was um, sort of creating a block in preparation for the possibility of a democratic administration that would re-enter the Iran deal. So what this is able to do is, you know, say America um, re-enters the, you know, the awful, awful, catastrophic Iran deal, as President Trump would say, the worst deal ever, um, then, right, you would see an increasingly influential Iran in the, in, in the Middle East. But you would also see an increasingly uniform, an increasingly powerful um, opposer to Iran in that there would no longer be this war between Israel and the Arab states, but they'd all be one united front against Iran. Um, so that's why I think that even if the United States would mistakenly re-enter the Iran deal, you wouldn't have the same sort of dynamic for Israel, for Saudi Arabia, for the UAE that we saw um, back in um, whatever, what was it, 2014? I can't even remember, 2012, whatever year um, we had originally entered, entered that, um, uh, the Iran deal. Perfect. Well, for the sake of time, that was a great resolution. And I think we all uh, agree with Adam that hands down, and I think foreign policy and kind of continuing with what Trump and the Trump administration was doing is a good idea. So let's move on to Rebecca. What do you have for us? Um, I don't have anything as poignant as uh, Adam's <laughs> resolution. Um, I'm not a, like a, you know, anything related to politics or anything, but I'm, I'm very interested, um, you know, ever since uh, I looked at the data after the election, like how much um, turnout there was for many uh, minority groups, um, particularly for Trump. And I was like, how would, how would like the Republican Party change and how would like conservatism relate to those who would you not normally associate them, uh, it with? Um, 
So I guess like if you're familiar with Trumpism, it's more of like a populist, like authoritarian type of like rhetoric as opposed to conservatism. And I was like wondering how can both be blended in such a way that it presents itself as very practical to various minority groups, um, but also stay true to like the basic principles of tradition and liberty. Um, so I think um, we may see a transformation in that, and that's something I, I really hope for, um, because I think that's something that will, you know, be very practical moving forward in terms of the political sphere, and you know, to get the Republican Party straightened out um, as like this whole like chaos gets figured out. Um, I do think uh, conservatives also have to be a little more proactive in the. You know, political sphere as well as the ac academic sphere. Uh, if we're talking very locally, um, I do think a lot has to be done uh, in the long term with trying to get our footing within, uh, you know, academics and trying to like really teach others what conservatism means because there's a lot of misconceptions, and that's something I want to see moving forward. Um, very simple, but brief, but abstract at the same time. <laughs> oh, that's actually really, really awesome, Rebecca. So the way I understand it, there's kind of two resolutions within there. Yes. One, it, it's, or well, I guess it's less of a, of a re resolution, but just kind of like, keep an eye on what Trumpism is in 2021. Because I like, I think defining Trumpism is actually one of the hardest things to do. Because and everyone wants to replicate whatever Trumpism is, at least the winning part of it. But there's certainly a part of Trumpism that is not winning. I mean, it, it's very easy to see so many different senators or 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 or, or representatives who outperform Trump in the in, in general elections. There's certainly parts of Trumpism that are not a winning formula, and I think are not the correct formula for conservatism. But there are certainly parts of it, and potentially it is that kind of reconfiguration of focusing more on minority groups and 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 being more of a working class populist party that might you know, be a winning combination. But I, I guess kind of the question with that is, is that what conservatism is asking for? Or are we just talking about how to win elections? I think that would be a more, um, let's say, a way to win elections. I don't think that would be what the ideology is. Um, I think um, in general, we have seen, um, if, I to go, if I would go off on a tangent here, I think in general, we have seen ideologies change um, sometimes we ask what liberalism is, like now we're asking what conservatism is. Um, so, so I, I think um, with with regards to like how to win elections in the political sphere, we just have to really understand what um, how republicanism can move forward, um, and whether some of the winning ideas from the Trump campaign could be integrated into that without so much um, violating what we stand for. Um, if we're talking about conservatism in general, um, I think that'll be a dicey area to really mess with. Um, and I think it's just something that we just have to um, clarify, because um, I'm pretty sure conservatism is just like limited government and individualism, uh, you know, like basic enlightened principles that does not need any more complication than that. Perfect. Yeah, so, so Adam and Peter, what do you guys think? within Trumpism itself, what do you think is most consistent with, uh, you know, true principled conservatism that also gives us a winning electoral strategy? 
Yeah, I think that the um, American conservative movement um, up until Trump in many ways, let's say from Reagan until Trump, um, you know, was a product of fusionism. Um, you know, so it kind of had influences from a whole bunch of different ideologies. Take libertarianism, right? Um, the American conservative movement embodied in the Republican Party had a deep sense of individual liberty, which I think we all buy into. But I think what Trump did was kind of pull the party from, um, pull the party back to kind of one lane of conservatism. So it's not like we're exporting our economics to, um, to libertarians, our foreign policy to neoconservatives. What he's saying is, no, this is one comprehensive approach. Um, so, you know, take liberty, which, you know, Rebecca, you had mentioned, I had mentioned, um, you know, a moment ago with libertarians. What he's saying is, no, let's take this value of liberty, which conservatives believe in, but not hand it over to libertarians to create this, um, you know, deep individualism, perhaps atomistic society. No, let's recognize communal liberty, you know, collective liberty. Um, and, and I think it's, an expression of a lot of the values that the Republican Party has um, for a long time, at least since Reagan been committed to, but taking those in a more authentically ideologically conservative um, um, uh, uh, lane. And perhaps I would argue more actually in touch with a conservative Burkean intellectual tradition. What about you, Peter? No, I'd, I'd agree, Adam. I think prior to Trump, the conservative party, the Republican Party, acted more like uh, Nebuchadnezzar's statues with the feet half of iron, half of clay, kind of divided against each other. Um, you know, the Republican Party's always been a coalition party, a coalition of a lot of different interests that at many times don't really kind of belong in the same camp together. And it's brought us a few wins. Um, but I think... Trump really kind of coalescing some of the essence of the values, um, maybe appealing a little bit more to the religious right, and has allowed him kind of a winning victory. But the interesting thing is I was, I was recently at the Turning Point Conference in Palm Beach, known to Vanity Fair as a conservative youth orgy. Um, and one of the speakers commented that Trump would be the last Republican president because of these um, differing interests. And I'd have to disagree with that statement. I think that uh, a winning coalition can be put together with a focus on showing that the conservative values lead to monetary benefits, to real life bread and butter benefits for the average American, even if maybe you know, they're, they're on the fence as far as the religious right and uh, what the religious right stands for. They can see that these conservative values um, held by the Republican Party can bring tangible benefits. I think COVID has maybe set that back significantly. You see a lot in the media um, blaming the financial crisis on Trump's economic policy, which seemingly ignoring the fact that there's a worldwide pandemic going on and that's why a groundbreaking economy was shut down. So we'll see if, if we can make that connection um, to the individual successes 
and liberties of Americans and Republican principles, then I think we do have a winning formula. But if <laughs> if media and academia can keep pushing our successes off into um, Democrat policies and um, the accidental failures become our legacy, then we're going to have a real issue winning the hearts and minds of the American people. So I think the fight really goes back to what happens in the media and what happens with academia, like you're saying, Rebecca. Um, like, I believe at some colleges, let's see, I have some figures here. There's from uh, this paper called The Vanishing Conservative. Is there a glass ceiling? Williams College, for example, the ratio of Democrats to Republicans in the professors was 132 Democrats to one Republican. So, you know, with the media, with academia bias like this, not representative of the American people in their ivory tower, it's very hard to set this narrative. And, that, and that's the thing that Reagan was successful in. He came in at a time when conservative economic policies were supported in academia. And unless we can kind of regroup in academia, regroup in the media, I think it's gonna be a rather difficult time for conservative values to win out. I think that's a really interesting point, Peter. Yeah, so maybe I was gonna ask, um, Rebecca, you had um, sort of noted as one of your resolutions and building off um, what Peter had had just said, was you want conservatives, conservatism to do a better job of changing the hearts and minds of um, liberal Americans. But my question then is for you, is that really possible? It seems to me that liberalism, progressivism is so entrenched into the way of life and identity of so many Americans, so many people we go to school with, that you can't simply just change their mind, change their heart. I mean, if you're shopping at Whole Foods, watching late night TV, driving a Prius. You know, it, it's kind of this all-consuming identity that I'm, how, how can you change their, um, is it really that conservatives are not doing a good enough job at changing minds or is it that this is just kind of intractable, right? Like we're hitting a brick wall, they're living this all out progressive lifestyle. That's I would just not say really quickly going to be changed in views. Mm -hmm. I'll just say really quickly that as a conservative, I love Whole Foods. And this is not a podcast <laughs> to slander Whole Foods. But, and Starbucks. <laughs> and Starbucks. But Adam, we get your point and yeah. Rebecca, <laughs> you guys can answer that. No, no hate, no hate to Whole Foods. <laughs> Look, I, I think I think it's a, a bit of both. I think the one thing just from observation that we struggle with is that we do what I call turn the other cheek. We're a bit passive. Um and there are some things I believe that we could definitely be a little bit more confident of instead of having people instill in us that whatever we say, whatever we do, is just holding us back, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I think a part of us, I think a part of like what um, we're required to do as conservatives is really within us. But another thing also has to do with what's outside of us. And that comes with trying to, um, Re, like reshape the academic sphere such that you have more, you know, what sounds appealing viewpoint diversity. Um, you know, there's, there's, um, 
there are many um, sociological reasons why that's important, but it also enables us to have influence on the culture, especially younger people, because they're obviously going to college. And, and that's the place where, you know, you, you get your most opinions or you solidify most of your opinions. Um, and uh, I think we also just need to be, you know, become more dominant in the media, like, and in, even in social media, because, you know, you see the biggest influencers um, is big tech and they influence the minds of others. So we kind of just got to be like, we kind of have to like push more in those areas. And those are more structural changes that are obviously going to be long term. But I think there are things that we could obviously do as individuals or as a collective um, to just influence people within the within our like social spheres, for instance. Um, so I think both is possible. I think that's the key, Rebecca, is we can't expect to undo 60 years worth of migration the opposite way in a, you know, a single uh, movement or a hurrah and, and hope to win their hearts and minds. It's a 60 year progression. Look back. how long the counterculture uh, movements are uh, active. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, yeah, it's been since the 60s, you know, so it, it's been. Um, so we we can't expect instantaneous victories in academia or the media. Um, it's a long, slow, possibly highly painful uh, work, and I I think that. But I think it's going to take take resolution and determination on our part, and um, active interjection at times with things like the uh, Section Two Thirty and and things like that to bring things back to a level playing field, bring things back so that media is representative of the American people's hearts and minds, so that academia is representative. Why do you think that Democrats have a higher percentage of college educated people in their ranks when only 4% of historians at a university are conservative? It's, it's really simple math. And I think it's, but it's just gonna take a lot of time and a lot of conscious effort to, to go back and yeah, it's definitely not going to be fun or quick. Yeah, certainly. So I, I, we actually, we're going to jump to Peter next for his resolution, but mine is so like relevant to what we're talking about right now that I'm just going to throw it out there. And that's to be a little bit less anti-liberal and more pro-conservative. I think at, at, at times we, uh, or conservatives in general, we have a little bit of a victimhood mentality and a little bit of a, uh, you know, it, it's just, it's fight back, fight back, fight back. We don't care how good our punches are. We just like start flailing our arms and it becomes like like two cats trying to hit hit each other's face with their paws. And, 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 and instead of like calculated strategic blows that are meant for a long-term victory. Uh, I think there are many cheap political quote unquote wins that people tried to get, whether both the left or the right, but I, I think most recently on on the right, I'm kind of calling out those who, who who are going to object to the to the electoral college uh, decision right now. But the the so this entire idea kind of came back. Uh, I was thinking about this the, the other day, so that even with amongst many conservative uh, friends of mine, they think that. Socialism, for example, socialism is okay in theory, but it just hasn't been done right. And, and 
I think that's a very prevalent idea. And usually our rebuttal to socialism or whatever is, oh, look, it just didn't work. It didn't work there. It didn't work there. Look at these historical examples. It didn't work. But when we should actually be attacking these things on principle, so that way they, they understand that socialism as a principle is not cohesive to uh, a, a free government, to uh, individual liberty, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the more that we solidify what conservatism is and teach that, and it's, and it's taught and it's understood by people, that it will become more of a cohesive, uh, understood ideology and eventually an electorally winning strategy. I agree. I think conservatives get caught in this rut of playing infinite whack-a-mole with liberal ideas, and we need to put down the mallet, stop playing their game, and come up with our own innovative policy ideas. And I think that's with, the, for example, the Middle East we talked about was so successful was Trump did exactly that. And I think it's it's high time. Reactionary parties typically don't last very long. You look at the anti-federalists. You look at uh, a lot of things. If you set yourself up as the anti-party, um, typically you're at the losing end of the culture war. Um, frankly, I like winning personally. Um, so I, I agree. I think being a little bit less anti-liberal and more conservative, that's that's a great resolution going forward into 2021. I, I hope that comes about. When you mentioned your resolution, it reminded me of this book I was reading. It was Capital of Freedom from Ken Buck. It's pretty good. Um, <laughs> and like, I think he said similar things. Um, you know, one of the important things he mentioned for you know conservatives now that we're moving, you know, forward is to reject divisiveness. And um, you know, one of the things that we would immediately go into is fall into the trap of like playing this us versus them game. Like they did it, we could do it. Like it's it's their fault. Like you know, I'm I'm completely like free of blemishes, things like that. Um, I think. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that may, like, I think it's a, a way that people would automatically or naturally resolve to, but it may not be a practical way mentioning if you're, if you're talking about longevity. And it also comes, I think he also mentioned, you know, we have to reinstate personal responsibility um, and, you know, make sure to reinstate like these um, proper principles of like the constitution and these principles of conservatism even in practice and with policy. I, I, I'm gonna have to disagree somewhat actually. So I agree, conservatives- Good, good. this is good. <laughs> conservatives, yes, we ought to focus on internal growth, think about our own policies um, more than just objecting to the left's policies. But I think it was William um, Buckley Jr. who defined a conservative as someone who stands athwart to history yelling stop. There's something almost definitional to the conservative that they are um, reactionary, right? That the conservative is saying, stop, stop, stop. Um, so I think, yes, we ought to focus on our own policies, but at the same time, we also ought to recognize it's within our DNA that we will be yelling stop, that we will kind of, um, you know, be defining ourselves in a sense negatively. Um, 
So um, I, I don't know that a total turn um, um, away from the left, ignoring the left, is exactly the right answer. But then again, oh, totally, maybe I'm mischaracterizing totally. um, um, what you had said. No, no, Adam, I think you make a great point. I mean, the nice thing is that God granted all of us two arms, so we could still play whack-a-mole and with the other one be typing up great congressional policy. <laughs> so like, you know, it, we, we can certainly still be, uh, you know, owning the libs at all times. But at the same time, having something substantial behind it and, 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 and being smart about the, the, the strokes and blows and political risks that we take so that in the long term, it is a winning ideology. Like if you're talking about something like opposing packing the court, like <laughs> I think, yeah, I think anyone would agree that we don't want things like that to happen or like making DC a state, et cetera, abortion to go out of control. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Totally, totally. Well, I think we're now on to our final resolution. Peter, take us home. Thanks. Um, I guess, you know, from, from kind of the energy I picked up at the Turning Point Conference and, and some of my kind of own musing about this, I think for me, uh, my resolution would be that the Republican Party would not lose their resolve, especially after a, a disappointing election. Uh, we're going into in a few days here, uh, the Electoral College is likely gonna confirm Joe Biden as the winner um, when, it's, when it's counted um, in the full session. So, I, you know, I, I just hope that people being disappointed in Trump's tweets about um, the election integrity don't dissuade Republican voters thinking that there's there's no point in voting anymore because it's so corrupt. Um, I, I we still need to show up at the ballot boxes and especially the primaries. I think we need to primary out um, people that we're taking objection to in the Republican Party and bring in the new conservative voices and really take the reins. And we can't do that if we're depressed and not showing up to the polls. So I'd encourage you if you're listening to this and you're discouraged about the presidential election results, please still vote, vote in Georgia, vote in your home state. Um, and yeah, don't don't stand to the sidelines next election because of what happened this one. Yeah, and, and I think Peter, there's actually, there's actually in many ways a lot of hope for conservatism within the last election because of how well Republicans did down ballot. And I think that actually showed pretty well that our country is still a moderately right country in many ways. And, you know, for, for example, uh, AOC within her own district did not win by nearly as many votes as she did last time. She lost a lot of vote share. And so there, there's certainly, I, in, in my opinion, a, a growing middle of the road American that I think conservatism can eventually win over. We just have to be smart about it. Yeah, I think those growing middle of the road um, are nearly exclusively those left behind by a excre increasingly extreme left, right? So um, yeah, I, I think you just see a left going further and further and further and leaving others behind. But I don't think that means we got to compromise on our principles to pull them in. Are you saying that we shouldn't, uh, you know, just get, hand out money for funsies? <laughs> I'm saying we shouldn't Infinite hand debt. out money for what? funsies, 
<laughs> but I'm also saying that handing out money during a pandemic is not necessarily for funsies. <laughs> yes, certainly. Yeah, that's a very, very, very fair point. Um, imagine giving it to the people who need it the most rather than just everybody. Interesting. What about you, Becca? Any any thoughts on that? No, yeah, I was I was gonna. I, I think what you mentioned about you know a, a growing number of the middle of the road Americans is really interesting because I remember I saw um, I I go on Pew Research a lot and <laughs> because I like looking at statistics about politics and I think one of the things that I saw is like I think like 30 32 percent of Americans right now are like more moderate and that like that has been growing over time especially with increasing uh political polarization um and, and i agree with adam is is because um essentially the left has lost their base and now you have uh this wide like uh, range of people um who are either like who are politically homeless or like now starting to question things and are now being a little open-minded about things um i think I think uh, eventually what we do need to learn is that we probably just need to not, um, you know, like afterwards I agree with you, like we just, we don't need to like sit on the side and like expect more losses. Like I think more wins are to come and I'm looking forward to 2022 and 2024, especially. Um, we just had to, you know, continue being determined um, and learn from our um, wins pretty much and uh, see what held us back before. Certainly. Great. So we're really close to wrapping up, but I wanted to do one lightning round of everyone saying one thing that they like, they are predicting that by the time of, by December 31st, 2021, we're looking back and like that happened. And it, it could be even kind of out of the box. To be honest, I was, I was hoping to say something like, the Green Party will have a resurgence and we'll have a true third party just because I thought that would be just like hilarious on Twitter. Um, but I think my, my last like quick prediction is that libertarians will become even more estranged from the Republican Party just because of how the pandemic has and how Trump's policies these past four years have grown the federal government and then add a pandemic on top of that. And so there's, there's just been kind of a movement towards a larger government. It doesn't really matter who the president is, the last 20 years or so, the government, the federal government just keeps getting bigger. And I don't see libertarians becoming more entrenched within the conservative movement, but I could be totally wrong. So Adam, you're next. Yeah, I think that, um... I think that you're going to see a lot of the trends that we're already seeing continue. Um, I don't think turning points, extreme changes happen all that often. I think Trump in 2016 was one. Um, and I would be um, very surprised if we saw something as similarly shocking as Trump's nomination um, in 16 in this upcoming year. I think we're still living out um what we saw what we realized in 2016 um so i see a lot of what we're seeing now on steroids over um over the next 12 months maybe that's not a great answer but um it's what i got <laughs> perfect all right rebecca 
that's funny, Adam, because I was actually about to say that. <laughs> but um, I, I think I think another thing that would probably happen is that there'll definitely be a lot of infighting. I think a lot of things are very um, dynamical, not only for the Republican Party, for but for the Democratic Party. And I think uh, it's just a, a matter of, you know, a, a small few of just figuring out what priorities they need to get straight. But I think in the beginning, there'll definitely be a lot of, uh, you know, figuring out stuff and, and we'll probably just see a lot of that going on. Perfect. All right, Peter, you get the last I, word. Perfect. I, I'm thinking we're going to see a lot of recall attempts on governors. Um, we see that the storm beginning to brew over New York and California. So that'll be interesting. And then also, uh, we, we're seeing kind of a mass exodus from uh, populated areas uh, like California and, and New York. Again, I believe in the past nine months, uh, New York lost a congressional seats equivalent of, of people moving out. So it'll be interesting as these revenue streams decrease, what the states start doing in order to make up for that lost tax revenue. So whether they get uh, huge... Uh, kind of uh, bailouts from the federal government that last them for the next 20, 30 years of poor policy, or if they start enacting conservative tax policies and things like that in order to to raise uh, raise income and start kind of reducing their amount of social payouts. That's, that's going to be something very curious to see in the next year. Absolutely. Well, we certainly had a very eventful 2020. I think 2021 will hope, I mean, you kind of hope for it to be more eventful just because it's there's some element of entertainment to all this. But in reality, it's serious stuff. And it would be so nice if by the end of 2021, we're like, do we even have a president? Do like, it'd be so nice if, if we just forgot everything. But uh, thank you three so, so much for this uh, really invigorating conversation. I really hope this is enlightening for our listeners. Uh, we would like to thank Jermaine Washington for his spectacular audio work on this podcast and to all of the Tory staff who make this possible. We hope you have a wonderful rest of your day wherever you are and we'll see you next time. <laughs>